Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, thank you, John. And now one more time, let's go to the Lord in prayer asking for his blessing. Father, we ask now that as we hear your word, that you would prepare us to receive it. Father, we have lived in this world for these past six days where we have been confronted with many things to where we are discouraged, to where we are terrified, to where we are frustrated. And now, Lord, yet again, we need your guiding light of your word to calm us, to convict us, and to confirm in us the promises that we have in Jesus so that we would be strengthened and renewed to go back out into the world as your ambassadors, as your disciples. And so, Father, whatever we may have brought with us this afternoon, whatever anxieties or fears, calm it now and silence it with the balm of the gospel so that we can be strengthened and refreshed and therefore renewed in our hope that you are God and that you will come to pass everything that you have decreed. Oh, Lord, we look to you now for strength and for hope. Be with us now and bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So we're continuing our Christmas or Advent sermon series that we started last week. And I've entitled this year's Advent series, The Christmas Names of Jesus. And if this is your first time with us, you're probably thinking to yourself, what are the Christmas names of Jesus? I've never heard that before. Well, yeah, you have. It's just that you've never heard it this way. We actually just read it in Isaiah's passage. The Christmas names of Jesus are the four names that the prophet Isaiah prophetically named of Jesus over 700 years prior to his birth in that little manger in Bethlehem. And those four names are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and Everlasting Father. And one of the things that we're going to see in this series is that each of these unique names not only tell us something uh, about Jesus, but more importantly, it tells us how coming of Jesus on Christmas Day sheds light on why Jesus is truly the greatest gift that God has given to us. Last week, we talked about the first name of Jesus, the Christmas name of Jesus, Wonderful Counselor. Well, today, we're going to take a look at the second name that Isaiah names Jesus, and that is Mighty God. Mighty God. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today as regard to that. Number one, the confusion surrounding Mighty God. Number two, why we need the mighty God. And finally, how to understand the mighty God, the confusion surrounding the mighty God, why we need the mighty God, and how to properly understand the mighty God. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, the confusion surrounding the mighty God. Now, on the surface, when you compare these four names that the prophet Isaiah names Jesus prophetically, this name, mighty God, seems to be the most straightforward. In fact, that's actually a mild way of putting it. It almost seems too straightforward. It seems too obvious to the point where it's a little confusing as to why Isaiah would give this name of Jesus when, in fact, mighty God is something that we already know about Jesus. Why is Isaiah referring to Jesus in a manner that is so almost unnecessarily obvious in which he doesn't need to tell us that he is the mighty God? It's kind of like uh, Isaiah, newsflash, we already know that Jesus is God, and because God by definition is mighty, we know that Jesus is mighty God. So why bother even telling us the nature of this Messiah by calling him in a manner that we already know? It's kind of like when someone asks you a question and you know the answer is so obvious. You know how you start second-guessing it, like maybe it's not the right answer? It's kind of like that. Why are you, Isaiah, trying to confuse us with such second-guessing here that it makes us doubtful that maybe we don't know these matters? Well, 
Some people have argued in Isaiah's defense that the reason why he's referring to Jesus in a manner that's so obvious is because he knew it wouldn't be so obvious, that there will be a time and place and a people who wouldn't realize in such obvious ways that Jesus, in fact, is mighty God. And in fact, we do see this in the Gospels. One of the things that you notice as Jesus lived his life and has done his ministry is that many, many people completely missed out on who he was. So many of the religious leaders, so many other people who surrounded him had no idea. Even his own family had no idea that Jesus was God in the flesh. And in fact, in moments where Jesus does confess that he is God, that he is the son of God, he is the son of man, which is all claims of divinity, you know how people reacted when he made that statement? What were people ready to do? They were ready to kill the guy, right? They were ready to charge him with blessing. Like, how dare you call yourself God? How dare you call yourself divine, right? This is why the Apostle John says this about Jesus' life when he first came to earth. This is John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The one who is the true light, Jesus, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Ah, so it turns out that what is so obvious to us didn't seem so obvious to other people. Yes, indeed. When Jesus walked on this earth, many people did not know what we so obviously know that he is, in fact, mighty God. And even today, for that matter, there are so many people who have very differing views, differing opinions as to who Jesus was and who Jesus is. You know, Muslims think that Jesus was nothing more than a human prophet of God. Jehovah's Witnesses think that Jesus was nothing more than a created angel of God. And, of course, the Mormons, they have an interesting theology. They think that Jesus was the brother of Lucifer. (laughs) Jesus was the brother of Satan. So maybe this is why the prophet Isaiah prophetically names Jesus as mighty God because he's anticipating the incoming confusion that so many have and will still have with regard to who Jesus is. Now, that sounds like a very reasonable argument. But believe it or not, that is not the reason for why Isaiah refers to Jesus as mighty God. That is not the reason. And in fact, as I'm about to show you, it's actually a little bit more complicated by that. But before I go on, let me explain. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When I say that is not the reason, that I'm not saying that therefore there's no confusion surrounding the name Mighty God. Because it is very confusing. The name Mighty God is a confusion. It is a conundrum. But it's not for the reason that I just stated, namely that it's so obvious to where it causes us to be secondarily guessing ourselves to confusion. No. There is another reason why the name Mighty God is very very confusing, and let me explain why. In the original Hebrew, where Isaiah refers to Jesus as mighty God, in the original Hebrew that's translated at that, it's the Hebrew phrase El Gabor. El Gabor. And you know what? That phrase El Gabor does not literally mean mighty God. It's not an accurate translation. So you're thinking to yourself, well, what does that phrase even mean? Well, see, this is the conundrum, because Hebrew scholars, both in the ancient world and in the modern world today, don't really know what that phrase literally means. Listen to what how Bible, one Bible scholar by the name of William McClellan, how he uh, talks about it. He says this, Of the four attribute titles which compose the child's symbolic name, mighty God seems incommensurate with all the rest. It evidently staggered the Jewish translators of the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. It turns out that this phrase, El Gabor, is very difficult to pinpoint in in terms of what it actually says, in terms of what it translates. And it all centers because of that second word, Gabor. The first word is so easy to translate. It simply means God, El, right? But Gabor, that second word, it's very confusing because you know what that word literally means? Hero. Hero. So when God is referred to as mighty God or as Jesus is referred to as mighty God here, it literally means hero God. 
or God of heroes or the heroic God. And therein lies the confusion because we don't know what kind of hero Isaiah is referring to. What is this hero, Isaiah? Is this the war hero, you know, who uses violence and coercion to violently conquer his enemies? Or is this the peacekeeping hero who's able to use diplomacy and kindness to where he's creating peace with his enemies without having to pick up a weapon? And the reason why I'm making these two distinctions is because when you read the Old Testament, God's heroic might is described both ways. Sometimes when the Old Testament describes the power of God or the might of God, sometimes it's referring to God's power as a divine warrior where he vanquishes his enemy on the battlefield and, and, and gathers them around and, and scatters them like they're nothing but dust. Listen to what it says in Psalm 24, verse 8. It says, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. But then, in other times in the Old Testament, God's heroic might is sometimes described like the way we would describe Martin Luther King Jr.'s power and his might, where he's able to use non-coercive, non-violent means to calm people down in such a way that his enemies are willing to live in peace with him without any sort of coercion, without any sort of force. And we see this most predominantly in the book of Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 2, 4. Listen to how it describes the power of God. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Or, let's go to the next passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 11.6. In that day when God establishes his might, right, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And the little child will lead them all. So here we see in Scripture what seems to be a paradox and therefore a confusion. When it comes to this notion of God's power, his might, it seems to speak two contradicting, two paradoxical ideas. Is it referring to God as the warlord who conquers with power and violence? Or is it God the peacemaker who's able to use non-coercive ways to create serenity and calmness amongst his enemies to where there has to be no Here is the reason why so many are confused when Isaiah refers to Jesus as mighty God. Which is it, Isaiah, and how do you reconcile these two things? And here's the question that we need to ask. Is there a way in which we could ever understand what Isaiah really means when he refers to Jesus as mighty God? How do we understand this notion when he envisions Jesus and his life as being the one who is mighty and full of power? Is there a way to figure it out? I believe there is. But in order to do so, we first have to go through a very long, arduous process of going through some very vital, important background Bible information. So please bear with me. It's going to be a little bit a bear to deal with, but follow along as I go into my next point, which explains where I'm going with this. Number two, why we need the mighty God. You know, one of the principles that life teaches us is that sometimes you can't understand something until you see why it's needed. Sometimes you can't understand something until you understand why that something is needed in the first place. And that principle is helpful in trying to figure out this nature of God's mighty power. And so we ask the question, why do we need the power of God? Why is God's might so necessary for us? Well, depending on who you ask, specifically the kinds of Christians that you ask, you're bound to get a wide variety of answers. For some Christians who tend to be more on the paranoid side, right, These Christians would say, like, we need God's power to make sure that an asteroid doesn't hit this planet and destroy the whole human race, right? This kind of cataclysmic, cosmic disaster. We need the power of God to make sure the sun doesn't go supernova and wipe us out, right? Other Christians who tend to be more on the charismatic side, and no offense to you charismatics in here, 
these Christians would say, we need God's power for deliverance, right? We need God to deliver us from poverty. We need God to deliver us from satanic attack and exorcisms and all that stuff. We need God's power to overcome physical illness, the whole name it and claim it, right, kind of idea. That's why we need the power of God. Other Christians who tend to be more on the political side of things will say, like, we need the power of God to get rid of those left-wing, crazy, secular, atheist liberals out of Washington, Right? We need to bring God and country together. We become one nation under God. We need the power of God's might in D.C. Right? Clearly, there's such a wide variety of answers as to why people think, why certain Christians think we need the power of God. And, of course, it all makes sense. Natural disasters, physical illness, satanic attacks, political persecution. These are real threats where we need the power of God, yes. But if you ask the Apostle Paul that same question... His answer is going to be completely different to any of those other answers. And the reason why I'm picking on Paul here is because he is the one New Testament author who wrote more New Testament books than any other New Testament author at all. Which is why we're not surprised that when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he gives us his answer to that very question of why we need God's might, why we need the power of Jesus. Listen to what he says. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now notice what Paul says and what he doesn't say as it pertains to the power of Christ, right? He makes no reference of cataclysmic disasters, no reference of an asteroid hitting the earth, no reference of political or cultural persecution. He does reference physical illness, right, a thorn in the flesh, and he does reference satanic attack, this messenger of Satan, whatever it is. But what does he say is the greater issue, the greater need where we need the power of Jesus? It's none of those things. What does he say in verse 7? He says it, right? To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, again, to keep me from exalting myself. He says it twice. According to Paul, the greatest need for the power of Jesus, for the mighty God, is to address the problem of self-exaltation. Let me say that again. According to Paul, the reason for the power of Jesus, the greatest need for the power of Jesus, is to address the problem of self-exaltation. Now, what do I mean by that, self-exaltation? What does that mean? Uh, Many years ago, there was a man who lived by the name of G.K. Chesterton. Some consider him to be one of the most brilliant Christians who've ever lived. And for those of you who don't know who G.K. Chesterton was, he was the man whom God used to bring C.S. Lewis, another brilliant Christian, to faith in Jesus. G.K. Chesterton was the great Christian apologist who brought to faith another great Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis. And there's a story surrounding Chesterton to where, you know, he, he, he was a British man, so he lived in London, where the Times, the London Times, put out a special news editorial where they asked its readership this simple question. What is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And apparently, G.K. Chesterton wrote a simple response as his answer to that question where he said this, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? According to Chesterton, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. Now, what is Chesterton saying here? He's simply repeating what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
The greatest need for the power of Jesus or God's might is not to neutralize some cosmic threat, not to neutralize some political or cultural threat, not to neutralize some health threat or even a satanic threat. No, the greatest threat against us where we need Jesus' protection the most is a threat that's inside of us. The Bible says that the greatest threat that you as a believer have to face is a threat not somewhere out there, but it's somewhere in here. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about shame. Shame. Self-destructive, self-hateful, self-condemning shame. And in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 specifically, here we discover the origin of shame and why it's so dangerous for us. Let me read it to you. Follow along as I read Genesis 3, verse 1, all the way down to verse 12. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Eve, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open and suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. When the Lord called out to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and therefore I ate. Come on back, your attention, please. Notice what Satan, disguised as a snake, what his main goal was as it pertained to Adam and Eve and therefore all of humanity, their descendants. His main goal was what? It wasn't to get all of humanity to worship him. It wasn't to get all of humanity to be his slaves. No, his main goal was to get Adam and Eve to suffer shame. That was his goal. Why? Why shame? That seems so arbitrary. What is it about shame? Well, look at the results of shame. What happened to Adam and Eve as a result of their shame? What did they start to do? They started to fixate They started to focus. They started to pay attention to an obsessive level themselves, right? They only looked about, cared about, and fixated on themselves. Look again at what it said in verse 7. It says that their eyes were open, and they saw that they were naked. Now, please don't misunderstand what it means. It's not that before Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they were walking in the garden like this with their eyes closed, and it wasn't until after they ate, they opened, they're like, hey, we're naked. It wasn't that. No, when it says that their eyes were opened, it simply means they were terrifyingly fixated on the object of their fear. They were terrifyingly fixated, frightened, scared out of their minds by what they were seeing, what they were focusing on. You know how people, when they watch scary movies, right? You ever look at their eyes? Next time you watch a scary movie with somebody, look at that person's eyes. Their eyes are like, like this, right? And they're like, and even when they cover their eyes right before a graphic scene, they always do like something like this, right? They're always peeking. Why are their eyes always so fixated like that? Because it's simple biology, right? We always keep our eyes on the thing that terrifies us. We always keep our eyes fixated. We never let it out of our sight. But here's the thing. If the fear 
thing that is in front of you is always in your sight and only in your sight, you know what else that means? Everything else is out of sight. The only thing you pay attention to, the only thing that you notice is that thing that has gotten your eyes this big, right? And what is Adam and Eve terrified of? Their own nakedness, themselves, right? Which means the only thing they're focusing on, the only thing they can think about, the only thing they care about is them, which also means other people, other issues, other problems, not in their sight, not in their notice, not their concern. You see? Here we begin to understand the reason why Satan wanted Adam and Eve to suffer shame. Because it was the means for him in reaching his ultimate goal. You know what that was? He wants all of humanity to be constantly harassed by their own ego. Let me say that again. The reason why Satan wanted Adam and Eve to suffer shame is because it was the means for him in reaching his ultimate goal for humanity. He wants humanity to be constantly harassed by their own ego. Here's the question. What happens to a person when they're constantly harassed by their own ego? Do you know what happens to a person when they're constantly harassed by their own ego? Well, how did Adam and Eve behave, specifically in their relationship with each other? You know, before Adam suffered shame, how did he think of Eve? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like all over her, right? So crazy in love. That's the biblical way of putting it, by the way, right? He was madly in love with her. But as soon as his ego starts harassing him with shame, how does he view Eve? God, it wasn't me. It was her. She's the one. Punish her. Don't punish me. She's the one who did it. Where's the love, Adam? What happened to bone of my bone? Flesh in my flesh. You see, friends, that is what happens when you're constantly harassed by your own ego. The results of it, the fruits of it is the people who you're called to care for and love become people that you don't care about at all to the point where you're willing to throw them under the bus. And these are people that you're called to love. What does that mean with regard to people that you have no relationship with? You know, I am convinced that the reason why it seems like there seems to be growing senseless violence, random acts of violence, is because we're living in a time and age where we are as a culture so fed up and so frustrated with this constant sense of harassment of our own ego, where our own ego is constantly harassing us. But that begs the question, why is our own ego harassing us all the time? Well, believe it or not, Paul already told us in that passage in 2 Corinthians 12. What did he say was the greatest problem of humanity? It's the problem of self-exaltation. We have a very self-exalting view of ourselves, which is simply another way of saying we have a self-praising view of ourselves. That's the definition of exalt, by the way. You look up the word exalt, the definition is praise, okay? And what does the Bible say praise is? What is that behavior? That's the behavior of worship. When Scripture says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, what is it saying? Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. So when Paul says that the fundamental problem of humanity, the greatest threat of humanity, is self-exaltation, what is he really saying? He's saying the greatest problem of humanity is self-worship. Where you see yourself as someone worthy of praise, see yourself as someone worthy of being worshipped. That happened to Eve. Look at what it said in verse 5 of Genesis 3. What did Satan promise her? You will be like God if you disobey him. You will be worthy of worship. You will be worthy of praise. What's the point? The point is this. The fundamental problem of humanity and the reason why the world is as bad as it is is because every human being that walks on this earth, including you and I, work under the same operating assumption that Adam and Eve struggled with after they disobeyed God. 
we carry the assumption that we are worthy of being worshipped. Okay? Now, why is that a problem? It's a problem because as you continue to live your life, you will do things or fail to do things that will disprove that belief about yourself, right? You're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to foul up. And you're going to discover that you're not as good in areas that you thought that you were great in. In fact, what's even worse, you may discover there's someone even better than you in areas that you thought you were the best in. You will be confronted in moments of life where this belief that you're worthy of being worshipped will be challenged. And when that moment comes, that is when your ego will spring into action and bombard you with shame so that it can use its shame to motivate you, to scare you into doing better, right? To do better at being better, to get stronger in being the strongest, to get more capable of being the most capable, to do all that you can do to refute what the shame is saying about you, that you're not worthy of being worshipped. No, I refuse to believe. Therefore, I'm going to do this. I'm going to achieve that. I'm going to accomplish this as evidence that no, yes, indeed, I am worthy of being worshipped, right? When you're constantly thinking that way, how are you thinking? You're thinking of a You're thinking of yourself in an obsessive manner. You're constantly thinking about what you need to do and how you need to live and how you need to prove to this and you need to prove to that. You're fixated on you, you, you. Now, friends, do you realize what this means? Especially for those of you who constantly struggle with a a chronic sense of shame. If you're a person in here and you constantly struggle with shame, What scripture is saying here is that principally, you're no different than the person who is so full of themselves and so narcissistic to where they think they're better than everyone else. That's what it's saying. Consider these very brilliant, wise words from Pastor Tim Keller. This is what he says. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same. They're both results of being overinflated. The person with a superiority complex is overinflated and in danger of being deflated. The person with an inferiority complex is deflated already. Someone with an inferiority complex will tell you they hate themselves, and they will tell themselves they hate themselves. They are deflated. To be deflated means you were previously inflated. Deflated or in imminent danger of being deflated, it's all the same thing, and it makes the ego fragile. Wow. This is why we need the mighty God. This is why we need the power of Jesus. We need the power of Jesus to conquer and completely neutralize our own delusional ego that constantly harasses us, saying we're not worthy of being worshipped to where we try to prove it wrong. But therein lies the question, how does God do that? How does God neutralize this enemy within that is constantly harassing us? Here is now where we're able to answer that question that we held off in the first point of trying to understand this idea that Isaiah is saying that Jesus is mighty God. Well, which is it, Isaiah? Is is he mighty God because he imposes himself on us, or is he mighty God because he's able to not impose himself on us and yet cause us to want to live in peace with him? See, when you're now able to understand all this background information from the second point, you can now come to understand what he really means by this notion of Jesus being mighty God. So let's do that now by going to my final point, how to understand the mighty God. You know, when the angel visited Joseph, who was the betrothed husband of Mary, the mother of Christ, right? In that encounter, the angel at one point in the conversation said this. This is Matthew 1.21. You, Joseph, are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do we have the passage up there? Yeah. 
You are to name him Jesus, Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, you see that word save? That word save also could be translated as rescue or to keep safe. It's sometimes even used as a military term for when a warrior king goes out and saves his people from an invading hostile force trying to come and take his people away, right? Interesting. The angel is using a military term that is reminiscent to how Isaiah is alluding to Jesus as mighty God, right? But what does the angel identify as the enemy where our king came to save us? It's what? The sins. Their sins. Our sins. The people's sins. Hold that thought as I read to you Matthew 15, verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Notice Jesus says here that the source of all of our sins that we need to be saved from originate where? Inside, in our heart, the same location where we find that harassing ego. Ah, now we can start to make sense of what Isaiah is saying here. Because when Isaiah says that he is mighty God, he's not trying to confuse us into trying to figure out, is it this, the warrior, or is it the peacekeeper? Which is it? He's not saying it's, it's either one or the other. He's saying it's both. Jesus came on Christmas to be the divine warrior without having to lift the finger against us. He is both. He came to vanquish his enemy, but he came to do it peacefully without lifting a harmful finger against us even though the enemy is inside of us. Here's the question. How did Jesus pull that off? The answer, he did it through the crucifixion. Let's read an account of the crucifixion in Matthew's gospel. This is the 27th chapter, starting in the 35th verse. We read, After they had nailed him, Jesus, to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself, so he's the king of Israel, is he? Well, let him come down from the cross right now, and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Here we read the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And for those of you who aren't aware, crucifixion was the punishment that Rome inflicted on those who try to exalt themselves over Roman's government. These were the people who tried to conquer and overthrow the Roman government, people who tried to exalt themselves above the authority of Rome. And so the punishment of crucifixion was to symbolically convey, convey that this person who tried to exalt themselves as someone who was above Roman law was conquered. His attempt to be exalted failed to where now he's being exalted over. He is being conquered. He is being subjugated. And that's what was being communicated when Jesus was on the cross. That symbolic punishment was conveying that Jesus failed in his attempt to be exalted, right? Now, what are the people around him doing as he's being openly mocked and humiliated as someone who is conquered? What are they all doing? They're harassing him, right? The Roman soldiers are harassing him. The former followers of Jesus are harassing him, right? Religious leaders are harassing him. Even the two guys crucified next to him, even, they're cruci- even they are harassing him. And what are they essentially saying in their harassment of Jesus? They're saying, prove us wrong, Jesus. 
You said you're worthy of being worshipped, but that cross right there that you're on is saying you're not worthy of being worshipped. You're not worthy of being exalted. Come off the cross. Prove it wrong. Prove our harassment of you wrong. Right? You say you're the Son of God, therefore worthy of being worshipped? Well, prove it. Right? By coming off that cross and shutting our mouths. Right? Shut our mouths by coming off that cross and disprove what we are saying, that you're not worthy of being worshipped. Show it off. Then we'll believe in you. Prove it. And what does Jesus do? Nothing. He stays on the cross. Even though he had the power to shut everyone's mouth, even though he had the ability through the act of coming off the cross to show that he's worthy of being worshipped, that he is indeed the son of God, that what the cross says about him is absolutely wrong, that he is worthy of being exalted, he stays on the cross. Why? Because he's trying to tell us that he is a much better God for us than we can ever be for ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. Remember how I said in my second point that when our ego harasses us with shame, it's trying to get us to respond a certain way, right? What does it want us to do? It wants us to disprove it, right? It wants us to respond in a way that can shut up that harassing voice inside of us, right? To where we do certain things, we perform a certain way, we accomplish certain things, to where we can say, you see, I did it. It's kind of metaphorical to us coming off our cross, our crucifixion, right? If the ego is kind of like these religious leaders harassing, you're not worthy of us performing, us, that's our version of coming off the cross, of shutting everyone up, shutting up the ego inside of That's really what the ego wants anyway, right? Because the ego wants to hold on to believe that we are indeed worthy of being worshipped. That's what it wants. But as I said in the second point, that inevitably fails because we do fail. We make mistakes, Okay? Here's the clincher. Here's what you really need to pay attention to the whole sermon. This is the most important part of the sermon, so just pay attention. This is the clincher. You would think that when the time comes and when the frequency of it happens, that when we're confronted that we're not worthy of being worshipped, you would think that we would finally be like, okay, it's true. I'm not worthy of being worshipped. And you just accept it and you settle yourself into that truth. But that doesn't happen. You know why? Because the ego still wants to hold on to stubbornly this belief that you're worthy of being worshipped, right? And so what does it do? it now gets infuriated, right? It refused to accept that it's not worthy of being worshipped. And as a result, it works even harder to hold on to that belief by manifesting itself in terms of feeling anger to the point where it feels like it's been robbed. Let me ask you, if you've ever been robbed by somebody, what do you typically want to do to that person? Or what do you want that person to suffer? You want that person to suffer punishment, right? When a person gets robbed, people who are robbed want the person, the robber, to be punished, right? And when the ego feels robbed by your lack of ability to refute it when it's shaming you, it's going to feel robbed, and it's going to want to punish the person responsible for not letting it fulfill its accomplishments or what it feels it's entitled to have. But who is the person that it needs to punish? You, yourself. Now you understand why people hate themselves. Now you understand why people are self-destructive. Now you understand why people are self-condemning, right? The reason why people are full of self-condemning, self-hating, self-destructive thoughts is because it carries the same underlying assumption as that arrogant, pompous jerk who has a God complex, holding on to the assumption that I should be worthy of worship. Even though it's not happening, I should be. I was robbed. And so your ego starts turning against you, kind of like an autoimmune disease, right? 
and it starts condemning. But it all again goes back to that same assumption. I'm worthy of being worshipped. Listen again to that first line from Tim Keller's quote, and that quote I just mentioned. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same. They are both results of being overinflated. What's the point of all this? The point is simple, guys. When you carry this assumption thinking that you're worthy of being worshipped, it never turns out well for you. And that's simply another way of saying, when you think that you are a better God than Jesus could be for you, it never turns out well. Because all roads to self-worship will always lead to self-condemnation, eventually. Let me say that again. All roads to self-worship will eventually, eventually lead to self-condemnation. That is the consequences of what happens when you try to be your own God. When you try to carry the assumption that you're worthy of worship. Now, with that said, let's consider the alternative. What are the consequences? What happens when Jesus is your God rather than you? Well, what does Jesus come to do for us? What does he do for us as our God? He is our Savior substitute, right? He came to substitute himself as our Savior. That's the whole message of Christmas. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus came on Christmas Day so ultimately he could be our Savior substitute. And what that basically means is he came to do for us what we should have done for ourselves, but we refuse to do. That's what Jesus came to do. And you know what one particular thing Jesus came to do for us that we should have done for ourselves, but we refuse to do? He came to accept the harassment that said he was not worthy of being worshipped even though he was. You see, we should have accepted the harassment that we're not worthy of being worshipped, but we refuse to accept it. So Jesus came as our substitute to receive that harassment for us. Do you get that? Right? Do you understand that? He willingly tolerated being harassed as being unworthy of worship, even though he is not, because we are unwilling to tolerate of being harassed as being unworthy of worship, even though we are. And why did Jesus do this for, the, for us? He did this for us. Because he wanted to show how much more superior, how much more mighty his love is. Think about it, folks. We refuse to let go of the idea of being worthy of worship to the point where we're willing to condemn ourselves first before we would ever let go of that belief about us. But Jesus loved us so much to where he was willing to let go of the idea of being worthy of worship to the point of being condemned for us on the cross so that we would utterly never be condemned by God. Do you see the difference? Do you see the profound difference of Christ's love for us as our God versus our love for ourselves as our own God? Here's the question. Whose love for us is actually mighty to save us? Is our own love for ourselves mighty to save us? No. Our own love for ourselves as our own God lead to our own self-condemnation. But the love of God in Jesus Christ is actually mighty to save us to where it can permanently silence that harassing ego where there is no more shame, no more self-destruction, no more self-condemnation, no more self-hatred. Here's the question. Do you understand that? Do you get that? But more importantly, have you received that love? Have you experienced that love? What makes Christ the mighty God? He is mighty God because his love is mighty enough to actually save us from ourselves. That is why he is mighty God. But here's the question. Have you encountered his mighty love for you? At this time, I want to invite you to just kind of reflect some of the things that I might have shared with you that might have 
resonated with you in today's message. And to facilitate that, I just encourage you to spend a few moments of just being in a meditative state of mind. Close your eyes. Have a prayerful disposition. And I simply want to ask you this question, folks. Are you being harassed by your own ego? Are you being harassed by your own ego? Do you find yourself constantly being ridiculed and persecuted by an inner voice that says you don't measure up, you're insufficient, you're worthless, you're a failure? If so, then may I be so bold to suggest that perhaps the problem is not that you have a too little view of yourself, but actually you have an over-exalted view of yourself. Could it be that the problem of your self-frustration and self-loathing is because it stems from your problem of self-worship? If you do find yourself this Christmas season being harassed by an inner voice, I want to encourage you to go to the mighty God who can once and for all silence it. Let's go to him now. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you now pleading on behalf of all those who have gathered here this afternoon, pleading for myself. Father, we are all too aware of the inner voice that is constantly harassing us, constantly shaming us, and therefore constantly causing us to just silence it, to get off our own crosses, so to speak, and to disprove it. Father, you know all too well that we cannot silence that voice. We cannot discredit it, for it's true. We are unworthy of being worshipped. And now, Lord, we need you to set us free from the self-condemning and self-punishing anger that we inflict upon ourselves because we stubbornly refuse to let go of what we needed to let go. What you, Jesus, willingly let go when you hung on the cross. Lord, it is astounding to think that You had all power, all authority to get off that cross and to silence everyone. To show indeed that you are worthy of being exalted. You are worthy of being worshipped. And yet, Lord, you voluntarily let it go for our sake. You did it for us because we couldn't let it go. And by doing so, you have spared us from utter cosmic condemnation condemnation that is far worse than we could ever inflict upon ourselves. And Lord, that just shows, does it not, your incredible, mighty love for us, a love that is truly mighty to save. That our own love is so impotent today, oh God, would you save us from ourselves? Save us from our own atrocious way of thinking. 
save us, oh God, from our own self-idolatry. Lord, we come to you now thinking about the extent and the wonder of the cross. Help us to always marvel at it, to see how beautiful it is, not because of its gruesomeness, not because of the atrociousness of it all, but because of what lies beneath it, the incredible love of God through Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you set us free now? We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people together said, amen. We're not going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But if you are a member of this body, let's give to God what is rightfully his. Let's give him our tithes and our offerings. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity for us to get together, come together as a corporate body and to worship you, Lord, Father God. Um, Help us always remember, Lord, that uh, we have a tendency to worship ourselves, whether we think we are or not, Lord. Uh, It's in our DNA to lift ourselves up on a pedestal and idolize ourselves rather than to look at you and to worship you, Father God. We pray that you 